I'm Ron McLean, and I am a meditation teacher. Uh, I don't always start with the origin story, but I guess this time I'd like to, which is why did you start meditating? How did you get interested, introduced to it? Well, it's, it's a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, actually. So <laughs> I, so I'm, um, I'm going to start with, I'm 53 years old and okay. 40 years ago, I was introduced to, um, a guided meditation technique by a doctor to try to help mitigate migraine headaches. Okay. So I started practicing at about age 13 and really didn't know until I was about 20 or 21 that it was actually meditation. So that's where the, I would say the meditation journey started um, when my cassette recording from the doctor had worn out. So was it, was it, was it your teacher or was it something he'd or she picked up from some store and gave to you? Where'd you what, what was on it? It was, it was actually a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I, you know, I was young. I don't really remember, but sure. he literally just recorded a guided meditation. That's um, you know, you can hear similar versions where, you know, you're, you know, descending a staircase and each step that you take down, you're further and further into relaxation mm-hmm. Um, and you get to the bottom and you go through a door and, you know, you're on a, a lovely grassy knoll and taking a stroll. And he really um, just um, articulated that experience so well that I, I will say that that technique did not help my migraines, but it would often help me fall asleep <laughs> and then I could sleep through the migraine. So I, I had sort of memorized his delivery. So even when the, the tape had sort of worn out, I would still just go in a dark room and, you know, it's, I get, I still get terrible migraines, but I um, typically turn on a fan, it drowns out a little, you know, background noise and put something cold over my eyes and lay in a dark room and just try to uh, get through it. So I would say at about, at about age 20, I realized that I could watch the pain and separate it from the suffering. So there, I had a lot of struggle with the pain itself. So when the pain would sort of kick in, I started that dread of how long is this going to last why does it hurt so bad? How can I make it go away? It was just the narrative, the dialogue that just wouldn't stop and it would cause me to panic. Um, And so over time I learned, you know, in my way to just sort of separate and I was able to just lay there and sort of watch what does the sensation of pain feel like? Where do I feel it? What does it feel like? Etc. So that was that was really my sort of introduction into all of it. And then once that tape wore out, yes. I went to Barnes and Noble and I'm looking through all the CD stacks and going, okay, this is a guided meditation. This is one. So I ended up with you know ten of them that I brought home and you know would just lay and listen to those. And you know, of course, there's whale sounds and someone in a lovely accent telling you to relax and close your eyes. And I. I loved that. I, I really just got into it. It was just part of my daily, um, you know, kind of, you know, medication really just to kind of get through my days. And I, I wondered how bad. So from third, I mean, that's a long stretch for a 13 year old to keep using a guided meditation. So that's quite impressive, which means you sort of you were set on a path early on of regular practice. Was it right. daily by that point or really only when symptoms came on? What? Um, at, at that point, it was only when symptoms came on, okay. but I could have, you know, depending, depending on sort of my level of, you know, anxiety I know now is sort of part of the root of this issue. Um, depending on the level of anxiety, I may have three or four in a week. Okay. So there was always that. So 
um, I was also uh, raised uh, Catholic. So I had a pretty good religious practice as well. So I, you know, was in the choir and, you know, I liked to sort of do rosaries Mm -hmm. and things like that. So um, I did that until I was about 16. Um, And then you, and then did you, till 16, does that mean you peeled off from the church at some point in your teenagers? I fled. (laughs) (laughs) Actively fled. You didn't sort of gently wander away. You're like, I fled. I, I had kind of a, you know, it, it was a guiding experience. I will, I will call it that uh, a shitty experience. Is it probably a little bit uh, more descriptive <laughs> more honest. Okay. Um, where I actually went to my priest and said, I think I might be one of those homosexuals. And his yes. response was, um, there are, he quote, there are not, a, there are not enough Hail Marys to keep you out of hell. And I tried to, you know, explain, I haven't acted on this. I'm 16 years old. I just think that this may be, you know, part of me. And he was not, um, he was not cool about it. So I fled in shame and terror, quite frankly, and avoided all of it for uh, (laughs) probably a good 15 years after that. Catholicism or religion in general? religion in general okay you know i tried on a few things that seemed a little new agey and they always seemed a little too too far woo woo for me okay (laughs) so So you had the tape the tape died your religion shifted during this period and then you went and got all these tapes and realized guided meditation it wasn't just that one tape like you're like i kind of like the whale sounds and i kind of whole industry about this right like i'm all about it and look there's a book and (laughs) (laughs) so where did it go from there so now you're experimenting with lots of different guided meditations where did your meditation practice how did things shift from your early 20s so i meditated for a long time i was um you know, I, like I said, I tried on, you know, some different things. I, you know, I tried to try it on some of the, um, uh, law of attraction stuff Mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe a little bit of chakra trying to understand chakra healing and things. And it just didn't really resonate a little bit of it did, but then I would, you know, just disengage over a little bit of time. And, um, you know, the meditation thing just stuck around because of the headaches, because the headaches were still there. I would still use the meditation and knowing now that it was called meditation and knowing that there were some techniques I could, you know, actually sit and, mm-hmm. um, you know, cross-legged on the floor, which I still like <laughs> surprisingly. Um, and I was, I had just gotten out of a long relationship and I had ended a portion of my career. Um, I worked in the hotel industry for a long time. I just ended that. And uh, I was dating a guy that was a lot younger than me and he was just sweet and lovely, but he cried a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And I felt really bad because he was just in so much turmoil. It wasn't about me. It was, you know, it was his inner thing. And I, um, I had heard that locally there was a church that did just open meditations twice a day. Mm -hmm. And I said, Hey, why don't we go to this meditation thing? thinking, you know, maybe he'll find a little relief and I'll find out what it's like to meditate in a group. So we did that. um, And I stayed and he left. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I met a woman um, there that she was not, she led this meditation and it was fantastic for me. I, had never really experienced anything quite like it. Um, And I ended up talking to her and she said, Hey, there's, you know, I've got a Buddhist group that meets on Sundays. I'm like, what does that mean? Do I need, you know, do I need a uniform or, you know, do I, (laughs) 
what do I, what do I do? And she said, just show up and, you know, wear what you wear and um, just do what you do. And I showed up and again, it just clicked with me. I thought, oh, oh, this is, this is really comfortable. And she actually, um, not long after that, we developed a, a friendship and she introduced me to my root teacher who is Lama Surya Das. And I ended up driving out to Boulder, Colorado to be his attendant and assist him. He was going to be a uh, keynote speaker for one of the first uh, Buddhist geeks uh, conferences Mm -hmm. in Boulder. And I thought, this guy is crazy and out of this world. And I couldn't take my eyes off of him and I couldn't stop listening to him because he made so much um, sense to me. So I just, I ended up working for him and following him around the country and leading. Um, I managed his, his retreats mm-hmm. um, and his nonprofit organization for a number of years and just sort of landed in my own seat. Um, so I've been teaching meditation for the last 11 years. Okay. And that's expanded. I also teach Buddhism and helped to found the Kansas City Buddhist Center. Uh, and I also created, you know, kind of my passion project, which is Cultivate Meditation and Cultivate Meditation Academy. So I'm not only teaching people and leading people in meditation uh, in a virtual studio, I'm also teaching people to be meditation teachers. Can I ask you, uh, you said Lama Surya Das was was your root teacher. So I know lineage Mm -hmm. is extremely, Mm -hmm. it's contested, it's tricky, it's argued over all over the world in Buddhism, but it's super important. So when you say he was your root, so what does that mean? And then does that, who is his root teacher and is he able to carry it back so far? (laughs) Yes. Well, and there, there, so he's got a long lineage in the Tibetan. Okay. Um, you know, he actually went and trained, you know, in, you know, India and, um, you know, in the, in the sixties and seventies, he was in silent retreat for nearly nine years okay. with his root teachers. Uh, and he's probably the, f- he's probably the first american lama to train in that in that specific way and under the guise of these phenomenal teachers um who are who are mostly gone now um so he really has um dilgo kense rinpoche um there's a a beautiful documentary about him called brilliant moon Mm -hmm. that was the lama that made him a lama okay so he has that and there he has uh, there's so many it's hard to to name them all but he's literally got um a a trove of photos of his his teachers uh, on his altar wherever he is so lama to lama and then he what what was your experience in so working with him is one thing, but then also becoming part of this lineage or tradition. Right. What was necessary in that? What what did that what did that look like? And I don't know, what did it look like to be conferred with anything in that fashion? Right. It well, it's interesting. And and I'll say that, you know, I have sort of uh, affiliation with uh, two different schools and Mm -hmm. two different lineages so he's really my root teacher and he really introduced me to buddhism and i'll get into the specific note of that in a moment but then i also have another teacher that i that i met up with and began following um oh probably six or seven maybe eight years ago um that is local that introduced me to the the zen lineages as well so i um you know have a little training on that side too um but lama suryadas practices what's called zogchen it's d-z-o-g-c-h-e-c-h-e-n excuse me zogchen and it's it's a bond practice. So it actually predates, 
Hinduism. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the sort of evolution of where Buddhism came from, Buddhism sort of born out of, uh, of Hinduism and um, Bon was predating Hinduism. So it's very old um, and it's not particularly Buddhist. It's been adopted and archived and kept alive by the Tibetan um, Buddhists. Okay. So it's a practice that, that has been folded into um, and very closely resemble, resembles Mahamudra in the Tibetan, Tibetan lineage. So they sort of flow together, okay. but it, it translates as the natural great perfection. So if you think about just that, the, the base of everything is as it should be. There is nothing to change. So that means it's not, it's not anyone's job to go and change the nature of a tree or change the nature of a thought or someone else's behavior. These things are all occurring as they should in just lawful birthing right? Mm -hmm. Everything's just sort of arriving as it should. So when we can take that posture and just really settle into what our own experience is, because really that's the only thing I have to control is my own experience and my own reactions to what is happening. And that karmically will change the things around me. Let me ask you something about that because I think I am specifically wrestling with a with a a circularity problem personally right now in studying Buddhism and all the things I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. This idea is very comforting, challenging that there is you know things uh, when you talk about this is just like this, this is just like that. This is how things are arising in this moment. There's nothing to do. There's nothing right. to be. But that doesn't make um, sort of sense in the normal superficial regular world because of course even as you said there's some work you're doing on yourself there's some way in which you're improving your awareness of things and so therefore there are things to do be and become even though at the fundament of some of these lines in buddhism there is nothing to do everything is perfect as it is but how can everything be perfect as it is and also working to change something inside of that structure Mm. i think I think the only, to me, the only thing to change is my attitude about what is, is happening. And when we have sort of this, I'm going to call it, you know, enlightened view. And, and that just, to me, that means all the lights are on. We see things as they are. And when I can see things as they are, and I'm going to give you an example. um, When I see agitation, or irritation in myself. And I can do some work and understand what's this agitation? What's this irritation about? For me, I am most irritable. I'm most agitated when I'm driving. And when other people start to cut me off, I Mm -hmm. get even angry. So in trying to understand, because I thought I just shouldn't drive. Right. But that's not the answer. The answer is understanding what's actually happening in my experience. So understanding and taking that sort of deep look, and sometimes it's uncomfortable, it's often uncomfortable to take that deep look and understand what do I really feel at my core that's making me react in this way. And for me, it's safety. I don't feel safe. I was, you know, when I kind of plucked all this apart, I was in a a nasty bus wreck when I was in high school and I carry that with me. I carry that experience of being in that accident with me. And when someone, you know, is being unsafe around me, I feel it viscerally. So when I can understand that about myself, I can understand that trait in someone else. So when we see things as they are, and we can react in a skillful way, understanding that person over there that's behaving very badly is having a rough time because I've been in that same place. 
so, so that's kind of the yeah. unfolding of it and the and the practical side of it because i really like the practical end of of all of this it's not just sort of sitting down and getting blissed out because that's <laughs> nice but it doesn't really get you that far that's sort of the shallow end of the ocean whatever feeling i mean obviously right you can sit down and meditate to get a feeling Right. I want to feel this way. You I can like relax. it. When I'm, yeah. yeah, right. You can relax. That's the very sh- like if you think about the ocean and you know that that lovely place that you like to go walk around <laughs> right. and sit, you know, and feel the mist and the breeze and you know try to watch a dolphin in the distance. That's the easy place. A mile out, it's scary. So then I let's then I this is perfect because I want to carry it back to the meditation because I actually think some people respond to meditation and they do Mm -hmm. find it. They initially some people like it because it calms them down. So they go they go do a five mile run and they sit down and meditate on their porch with the the sound of the ocean and the in the the tinkling of a wind chime. And they feel good. It gives them a feeling of euphoria and it starts them off on their day and they get that. Other people have the experience it's unsettling. They go meditate and they start out in the ocean and they find themselves in deep waters. There's uncomfortable stuff popping up. Right. Tell me all your thoughts about those two kinds of things you can get from meditation where it's carrying people, maybe what meditation does for you, or if there's any should about, is there a should meditation do something? Well, I think, you know, for me, I, I know that um, my first experience with my teacher was in the deep end like he just <laughs> oh, throws like he throws you right at, he throws everyone in the deep end there is no there is no casual way of like let's just get our feet wet there's none of that it's all in the deep end of here's where you are and it's like holy moses what is this like this is amazing and frightening at the same time and i want to try it again so I I would say there's a couple different ways and you have to really just pick your own path. So if you prefer to, you know, get used to the water as you sort of get deeper and deeper, that's fine. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. If you really feel like you need to jump off into the deep end and just sink or swim, that's okay too. And you figure it out both ways. Okay. So you do feel like you get somewhere. So tell me what, absolutely. tell me what could happen. I know there are also within Buddhism, which, which deals so much with meditation. There are many, many views about what's happening in meditation. Where are you getting, where are you going? Where are you coming from? Where are you supposed to be going? Maybe (laughs) all kinds of basically similes, all these experts Mm -hmm. saying meditations like this meditations like that and then eventually get down to that base level meditation just is what it is for you right what is what is meditation so that it encompasses all that experience the people in the shallows the people in the deeps the people who don't have a goal for meditation the people who are trying to get somewhere with meditation i don't know what is that right I, you know, I teach both ways. I teach, okay. you know, the, you know, just getting your feet wet and, you know, starting with something as simple as watching your breath, just that sensation of, you know, if you're just paying attention, breathing through your nose, how it feels cool when you breathe in and then warm when you breathe out and just watching that is physically, viscerally going to calm your body. Like it just does. It's yeah how we can calm down and i also teach the deep end so if you want to just be you know thrown off the end of the boat i'll throw you off the end of the boat and i'll be there when you come back up and have questions and that's the thing tell me what that looks what does the deep end look like it's kind of like i said earlier there's and i you know i i make it a point not to to really spell out I don't want to tell you about how it feels for me to meditate because then you might go try to do exactly that. And it's different for each one of us. So I just want to tell you how to get there. And then you go have a look around yourself. You know, like when you're looking at houses and the realtor says, you go in and check things out and then I'll meet you out back. (laughs) That's the same kind of approach. So you go in, walk around and see what you feel and think. And you might pop back right back out and go, Oh no, that was frightening. Um, And we'll talk about, you know, what's frightening. 
what's, you know, what's got you. But I think for most, we're, we don't get to meditation because we're just bored and want to try something out. We're often, as we are with our religious practices, we're hurting in some way. We're suffering in a way that we need relief. So when we're showing up, when I show up for meditation, even if I don't feel like it, I'm jumping in. Like Mel Robbins said, Mel Robbins says about, you know, her five second rule, five, four, three, two, one, just do it. So I five, four, three, two, one, sit right there on that cushion, like <laughs> just sit, sit my butt down. And sometimes it's really easy and I just drift right into it and I can see the bliss and I can see the, you know, the agitation in myself. I can see the restlessness, restlessness in myself, but you know, there's other days where I'm like, I don't want to do this. This is just uncomfortable. And I want to get up and I, you know, I want to go run around the block or get away. And for me, I'm, you know, I'm working a lot with anxiety and depression and things that have been there really all of my life. Mm -hmm. So getting at the getting at the base of where do I feel this anxiety? What is the physical form of my anxiety? Where is it? What is its nature? You know, how does it feel? Because I know, you know, part of it is just chemistry. You know, part of it is just my reaction to whatever. Maybe the barometric pressure is different than it was (laughs) yesterday. And I just wake up and feel restless and agitated. Um, so I sort of medicate with meditate. Uh, I'm thinking about what do when, so as a meditation teacher, um, I mean, you have certain techniques. Um, right. You don't want to tell people what it's going to feel like. No, um, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the, the, I'm going to tell you where the gas pedal is and where the brake is and how to start the ignition (laughs) and how you should sit in the seat. Um, I'll give you all those cues. And then you get to kind of go as deep as you want to go. And sometimes it just happens. Um, You know, just the, it's the right, you know, it's the right atmosphere and you just zip right in and have a, a deep experience. And that to me, that depth is formed by clarity. So it's not, I may see fear or I may see agitation, but I see it for what it is. So I'm not reacting and responding in a panicked way because I feel a certain way. I'm kind of unpacking it and wandering around it within that, um, within that experience and just investigating um, really just looking, seeing what is this? Yeah. When you described in the, in the very beginning, when you were talking about your first experiences with meditation and dealing with migraine pain and then saying, I could see where the pain was. And then I could see where all the stuff I'm bringing to the pain or all the stories I tell myself about what that pain means. And yeah, one of my, I'm completely obsessed with, the the buddhist buddhist pitch about the second dart like you can't avoid if you're feeling anxious just like you said you can't avoid those physical sense those physical sensations of anxiety are real but then what's all the extra stuff you're bringing in that's causing you more pain that you wouldn't need to feel well and i will say you know that you know to really unpack it you really unpack what is even real what what is well because think about like this you know because we think of physical pain as real we do what yes. is that so it's you know it's things firing within this human physical form that are firing like little electrical impulses that are going back to a brain and going this is pain right is that really real can you really kind of hold that in your hand can i hand you pain and say try <laughs> this out this this is terrible try it right <laughs> You know, it's so you really start to unpack what is real and what is what is narrative and what is 
conditioned you know certainly there's a sensation when we put our hand on the hot stove and there's a reaction next time when we see the hot stove and we ah i don't want to touch that because it's hot yeah so there's a bit of that and you know by the time you get to you know you know 40 or 50 years old you've got a whole you know truckload of stuff that you don't want to touch right, <laughs> right. you catalog a lot of stuff in your because it hurts yeah. right? right so so then you know well that kind of looks like that so i shouldn't touch that either and now we've got you know this cyclical sort of neuroses that starts happening within our brains and we become compact and stressed out and i don't want to touch anything i don't want to go anywhere now i don't want to leave my house it freaks right. me out to go to the grocery store, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a conflict? So one of the things you were describing, I'm reading a book by a philosopher on desire, and he very much paints this, you know, he includes stuff about Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, and also about science. We are built to be desiring creatures. And right. then Buddha comes along and makes this pitch that you know, your problems are caused by your desiring, but we literally are alive today because our forebearers throughout history desired things and because the things they desired allowed them to have more kids be more successful not get eaten right it sometimes feels like this awareness that comes with meditation and the world it does come in conflict with our biological or um, societal level of success like what does success look like do you how does that manifest how do your intuition your insights that come with meditation how do those manifest as success or how do those integrate with your life as a human being? Do they change what you want out of life? Do they change what you desire or do they just make you more aware of what you would normally desire and you desire it less or what's happening? I don't think you desire it less. I yeah. think there, you know, in, in the field of sort of enlightenment, you know, if we're, if we're trying to become more enlightened people that, that really means, I mean, think about a, you know, a, a big dark room and you turn on all these lights that, <laughs> that illuminate every corner. There's no darkness left in the room and you can really see whatever's there, right? So, you know, that thing that was lurking in the corner is no longer lurking. It's just a shoe, you know, yeah. it's just a thing. And you start to understand the nature of whatever you're examining. So, you know, I, what I heard you say about desire was, you know, attraction and I'm attracted to the things that I like, and that's not wrong. You know, we, where we kind of go wrong is where we lose touch with the knowing that we're attracted to something instead of just being pulled by it constantly, pulled by our preferences. So when I'm just pulled towards things that I want and pulled away from, you know, trying to pull myself or push my way away from those things that I don't want, then it becomes reactionary and I become, um, you know, greedy or a jerk or, uh, you know, reacting badly for all of us. So, I think there's a, to me, there's a difference between attraction and attachment. So the attachment, and we use that word a lot in, in, you know, the translation of Buddhism, that understanding attachment. So we're naturally attached to loved ones, to things we like, and we feel bad when they go away. So again, we've now had this experience of we had something that we liked and it went away, whether it was a person or a thing, it was stolen, it was wrecked or um, lost, and we felt terrible about it. So right. then now we've got this condition of we want to hold on to things. And that's the basis of attachment. So when we can realize, I really like this thing and I appreciate this thing that I, that I have and that I'm experiencing, but if it goes away, I'm not destroyed. I'm still here. I am just at the basic, the basic root of everything is I am until I'm not. Right. So that is, that's fascinating too. That again, that I car carries also back to this meditation um, 
the approach in some of these things to keep digging down into self and to right. identify that all the things that are not self, the things you right. thought were self are not self. Yeah. And that some, it seems, then it gets real philosophical, complicated. There's long, complicated philosophical arguments in Buddhism about what that means, self and not self. Right. For you at the base of meditation, is there an absolute self or is it one of those um, uh, paradoxes where self and not self coexist as sides of the same coin? How do you look at it? I'm super practical. So <laughs> I, I noodled on that one forever and I, okay. I you know, it annoyed me uh, because I'm like, what is no self? Like I right. feel like I can feel this. This is, you know, I can smash my hand with a hammer and yeah. that I feel that you can't tell me that it doesn't exist. So there's, there's a couple of things here. So self, I want to explain as anything that the ego derives as this relative being. So this is Ron. Ron has feelings. Ron has fat cells. Ron has sinus issues. Ron has mm-hmm. headaches. Ron gets hungry and Ron poops. Okay. Like it's all of that package. So the things I think, smell, taste, touch, all the senses, that's the self, the relative self. And then there's this ultimate. So then we're balancing and that's one of the things I'm attracted to about the Dzogchen practices Mm -hmm. is that we're simultaneously in this relative self sort of working up from the ground, you know, think of yourself walking up the mountain path, but then there's this ultimate self. That's more like this mythical bird that is above everything that can sort of see the, the Google landscape (laughs) below you. And you can see where the path is going. You understand the terrain, but there's this relative self that self that still has feet on the path. So these are simultaneously working. So we say, you know, climbing up and swooping down simultaneously. So these things are both there. So there's, there's also a thing that is this, I'll call it uh, pervasive or, um, primordial consciousness okay. that is attached to sort of everythingness. So this is our interconnectedness. And this is the thing that in quantum physics a few years ago was, you know, validated and they found it in quantum physics, physics called the unified field. So this is the thing that connects everything. So everything that we are, everything that we experience all comes out of this unified field. And that is science catching up with Buddhism. And that I get super geeked out about that because <laughs> it's practical. I can, I can understand that. I mean, it's, you know, it's heady, but at the same time, I can get that, oh, there's, there's that interconnectedness that when this physical form dies, because it does, it's, that's one of the, you know, one of the gates to our understanding is yeah. this physical form and everything around me is impermanent. The no self part, which we call anatta, is the, the piece of us that's not separate from that field. So when this fades, it goes back to that field. Like it comes apart. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything that comes together also comes apart and then comes together in another way and comes apart. There's nothing that's born, nothing that dies. It's all contained within. So this to me is the practical part of Buddhism that I get super duper geeked up, geeked out about because it's calming to me. There's nothing that I have to um, hope for. You know, I can see scientifically that there's some proof that I like. Um, In what ways has meditation um, been challenging? So when you described um, the, you know, when you met your root teacher and the root teacher introduced you to meditation, like, oh, it was into the deep end right then. Right. Unsettling, challenging. In what ways is meditation? It sounds like there's lots of ways in which it can be calm. In what ways is it challenging that you find things you didn't want to see and you are aware of truths that are not comfortable and you wish they were not like that? Uh, it's, 
I, I often talk about this being sort of like those hoarder houses where you just have to go through room by room and piece by piece. And you know, you're going to find something in there that you don't want to see. <laughs> like there's, <laughs> there's something bad at the bottom of that pile. I've watched enough of those, <laughs> of those shows to know something's dead in there and <laughs> you're going to find it and it's going to be unpleasant. So I think that to me is the challenging part is when you know, when we sit down, we know that there's a a possibility that today we're going to scratch into something that is really uncomfortable and I don't really want to deal with it. I would rather be blissed out and have a cool, you know, <laughs> cool float, you know, <laughs> no biggie. But sometimes we run across the things that just have to be cleaned out. And once they're out, they're out. But discovering them is unpleasant at times. So that's to me, the most challenging thing. Have you seen in your own experience, are there people who, I mean, I've, so I've seen this in people who go to therapy. I've seen this in people who sit in rooms and try to discuss things and just can't confront them. And it reminds me of what psychiatrists have to deal with, with people with post-traumatic stress disorder. Sometimes in this moment, the person can't face that, but you just watch, they bounce off the thing. And like, I can't deal with this. Right. Does that do some people just have you seen people just walk away? They're like, look, I like this meditation thing. I can't listen to my thoughts. So I got to go. Like, yeah. No thoughts for me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I understand and respect that. And I also know I've been doing it long enough yeah. that the, you know, the person who walks away now may come back. And say, okay, now I kind of understand that thing you used to say. I was really annoyed annoyed by what you said before. And now <laughs> I've sat with it long enough, you know, because again, you know, we're all just doing this because we suffer. Yeah. Things suck. So we're trying to find a way out of the suckiness. So something's going to bring us back and we're going to go back to, you know, rehab in a way, you know, to, <laughs> right. to try to fix what's wrong. So I think that's, you know, that's notable, you know, and it may, this may not be the thing because it's not the only way to find relief from suffering. It's yeah. a good way, but there are other ways. So I, you know, I think there are a thousand flavors of relief and you have to pick your flavor or flavor combinations. I combine, you know, several things to get to what's useful for me. Yeah. I do a lot of chanting like Tibetan chanting and I would have never thought that I would have done that. I, you know, I was always been a singer. I was in a, you know, in the church choir and yeah, you know, all of that, but I didn't see myself singing mantra and, you know, finding instruments to accompany myself with mantra and finding relief from that. I would have never guessed that, but it's part of my, part of my daily practice. A different flavor other than silent or guided sitting meditation. Something and specifically extra. like on the days that it's easy, I can sit on that seat and I can be as quiet as a little mouse and the days <laughs> where it sucks, I'm going to chant. <laughs> chant and you know sometimes that's just how we kind of you know it, it's no different i'm also you know an avid cyclist if i get on that bike and i have to be very very present you know those tires are about an inch wide and if yeah. you find just the right rock or stick you're going to end up on your butt so or on your head <laughs> one of the you know one of those options so I'm very meditative when I'm physical like that and, you know, going 10 miles or 15 miles an hour Yeah, on a bike. So that there are different flavors in that specific way. Um, I also like to crochet. It's very meditative. So it's not just about closing your eyes and sitting on the floor. Folks with PTSD, a lot of times have trouble closing their eyes in meditation because they start feeling ungrounded and, and fearful. Yeah. The Dzogchen practice is open eye, open eye, even slack jaw, just sitting relaxed, just letting everything be as it is. So it's not, it's not refrained. It's not trying to ward anything off or chase the thoughts away. 
it's just letting them do what they do and you just watch. Um, have you also in the meditation, are there practices in, in, uh, in your work you've done about the mortality stuff? I mean, a lot of times they try to sort of, if you're having trouble with lust and you think about how bodies are nasty, if you're struggling right. with mortality, you do the meditations right. about how horrible and nasty dead bodies are. <laughs> have you, have you done any, have you played with any of that? Is, well, that's that so, useful? that's so calming to think about. <laughs> that's like, what I'm saying. Not calming at all. You know? No, I mean, okay. I've done a lot of work on impermanence and okay. understanding impermanence because, you know, we can think about, it's easier to think about, you know, your favorite pen yeah. and how you lost it and you feel sad about that. Or, you know, the diamond ring that you had that somebody stole. It's easy to think about that. It's really hard to think about the physical body. My parents still say about <laughs> death, um, they still say, they call it the unthinkable. I'm like, is they among them, they call it the unthinkable. The unthinkable. If the unthinkable happens and I sure. die, I'm like, yeah. you mean the inevitable? Right. And of course, then we fight. But <laughs> right, okay. Because they don't want to think about that. They right. they want to think that some miracle is going to happen, and many people do. That yeah. you know things are just going to go their way, and they are not going to have to do that dying thing. Like it's just not going to happen. So I've done a lot of work, you know, in my in my practice on impermanence and there are some there's some of the tibetan practices that are a little the visualizations are a little they can be particularly vivid i guess they they can be vivid i so when people have passed around me i have a version and it's kind of a cliff notes version of the tibetan book of the dead okay and this is a practice that you literally read aloud to the person who has passed. And it's sort of instructions on how to navigate this um, bodiless nature yeah, because it's going to be crazy. So the Tibetan Book of the Dead, again, it's super vivid in here's what you can expect on day seven. Like here's your, you know, so you're like Julie, the cruise director with this thing. And, you know, I'm going to guide you through it. It's a great practice for grieving. So when you, you know, consider yourself talking to the person who has, has, you know, departed and you're helping them to guide through the bardo um, or the, that sort of thing between death and rebirth. Mm -hmm. Um, which is an interesting concept. Of course, I don't know if it's true, um, but I will allow it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm going to allow it and every other thing as a possibility. So I, you know, I've actually found some comfort in reading that text, that translated text, and there are many versions of it, but, you know, I found a a nice brief one on Kindle. Yeah. (laughs) Which seems odd, (laughs) seems like it should be a very pretty book that I'm reading to the dead, but no, it's from my Kindle. Well, truly ephemeral, just digital pixels on your screen and will pass away as soon as you turn your device off. Right, exactly. <laughs> or the battery dies too. What yeah. do you do when people come and they find out you teach meditation? Mm-hmm. What either advice or what reference do you point them to? Or what do you suggest they try? Do you have some regular things or you talk to people to find out what would work for them? What do you do? Yeah, I, you know, I think the, the most common question I have um, from folks is, you know, I, I'm interested in Buddhism, what should I read? Of course. And my first response is nothing, (laughs) read nothing. (laughs) Because really, and you know, where this is where the discomfort starts is that you can't really learn enlightenment from a book. Yeah, you can read about it. And it, you don't really have a context for what it's saying. So the where the rubber meets the road is this practice. So it's the practice of sitting and, you know, quieting yourself and quieting your neuroses. So you can sort of just take that bright look around and see, ah, what's that? Oh, that's irritation that yeah. is arising or that's lust or that's, um, fear, or whatever it may be. And you start to understand. Then when you read it, you're like, oh, that's that thing I experienced <laughs> in a little bit of, you know, contextual, you know, yeah. 
learning. So, you know, if you're, if you really, really want to read um, about Buddhism and see kind of the shell of what the teachings look like, um, Awakening the Buddha Within by Lama Suryadas is mm-hmm. one of the quintessential books, American or uh, Western books on Buddhism. And it covers, you know, the basics of Buddhism. And it's really well written. It's really, um, it's a really good start, in my opinion. It's not too heady. Um, it's just enough to kind of give you an idea of what Buddhism is about. Yeah. Um, and from meditation standpoint, I say, let someone guide you. And okay. whether you pick one of those lovely apps, I'm on Insight Timer, which I really like. Uh-huh. Um, but I, one of the rules I have is that I can't be a good teacher if I'm not a good student. So I am a perpetual student. So I listen to other people's meditations and I participate in other people's retreats and read other people's materials and books and listen to lectures by them. Um, Because I think it's really important for you to just hear those nuances that I may say it in a different way than someone else. And one of those ways may actually resonate with you. So listen a lot and try on as many as you want, you know, calm, the calm app is great. Um, Insight timer, there's uh, several, I I think there's a new one every day. I'm writing one actually right now for cultivate meditation. Oh, nice. Um, That's, you know, not super guided, but more experiential where you can, you know, just watch waves and listen to the sounds for, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, just yeah. as, just as, you know, getting your toes in the water. But, you know, if you really want to jump off the, you know, the pier or off the, the, the boat in the deep water, <laughs> right. get a teach. you really need a teacher because okay. you need to be able to ask questions. So don't just tr- try to read somebody's profound teaching. If you can't ask them questions or ask someone questions. 